0: I went to Cedarville College, or Cedarville University now, up in Ohio, and having grown up in Texas and Florida, uh, the, the whole experience of snow was a new, a new thing for me, and a lot of people uh, talk about you know how, how miserable the weather was, is up there and all that during the winter time, but you know what, I, I really enjoyed the snow, had a lot of fun, in fact, looking back most of the times that I found myself getting into trouble had something to do with throwing snowballs and them hitting the wrong people or, or places, that kind of thing. And uh, one day I decided I was going to get back at my buddy Mark, and I don't even remember for sure exactly what he had done. I, he might have frozen my underwear that time. Uh, I came back to my room, and, it, and this happened more than once. So, um, but you know, the tree in front of the dorm was all decorated in, in your underwear, um, all uh, you know, soaked and then frozen like cardboard. And for me, it was more like just an expense. Um, the uh, the coin-operated dryer used a lot of quarters. And, and so I was going to get it back. And, and so I had, I had packed a big snowball. And Mark was, we lived in the same, we were different. We had different rooms, but lived in the same small kind of unit. Uh, uh, there are three rooms in there. And so I had I kind of engineered this contraption. Uh, I can't remember if I used paper or what exactly, but where I had a big... Uh, snowball waiting for Mark as soon as he walked open into the unit door that was going to fall down on him and I was sitting back in my room studying my Greek or something and I hear the door open and I get excited I'm like this is it and I, I hear a crashing noise and then I hear this hey hey this is Dean Purple so it wasn't Mark uh, Dean Purple was pretty much the guy in charge of um, all the resident associates. Basically, the, the, the one guy you would not really want to walk into your unit, um, uh, particularly if you rigged up something just like that. And he says, hey, I have some guests here. And so he, he walks in with um, a young man who happened to be blind and his parents And so I I realized what was going on, and uh, and unfortunately, I was the only person there in this little three-bedroom unit, and I looked at my window, and I really thought about doing an exfil out the window, but they had these screens, and there was like a $500 fine for removing your screen, and our our names, I think, if I recall right, were printed by the doors of our rooms as well, so um, it wouldn't have been hard for them to triangulate. But I, I just uh, sat there and kept working on my Greek and didn't really respond. And finally, uh, he, he yelled out again, hey, is anyone there? This is Dean Purple. Well, clearly someone was there. Um, it would have been impossible for no one to be there with a contraption such as it was. And, and so finally, I think I just kind of muttered very quietly, uh, yes, uh, we're here. And I was hoping they'd kind of turn and leave or something. But they ended up um, staring right into my room uh, in, the, in, in the little hallway there. And so I got up and I was really um, tempted to say, hi, I'm Bob. That was my roommate's name. But uh, thankfully I had the Holy Spirit in me and didn't out and out lie. But I'm pretty sure I managed to have a conversation without using my name. So anyway, uh, the next day in my uh, mailbox was this little purple slip, which was a summons to go visit Dean Purple. And I remember I was thinking there's got to be a good reason you know, where this is all going to work out just fine. And of course, Mark looked at me and he looked at the slip and he said, oh man, you're in trouble. So he wasn't helping much. So I go in there to his office and um, let me just stop here for a moment and say, kids, if you ever do something dumb, all right, the best thing to do is just to, to own up to it. And, and so what I should have done as Dean Purple stood there, kind of getting rid of ice and snow off his shoulders, I should have said, you know what? Um, I'm sorry about that. Um, uh, That was intended for my buddy Mark, who had it coming. Uh, It might have even been okay to inquire about the engineering and say, hey, did that get you right on the head, you know? Maybe, but you just own up to things, right? Well, I made the mistake of not doing so, and I didn't, I just never said anything about it. I talked to the family a little bit, told them that uh, you know we would all welcome their son really well, and Dean Purple kept giving me this little look. And I should have just addressed the elephant in the room, but somehow I failed to do so. And so uh, uh, Dean Propel brings me in and and asks me to have a seat. And he explains to me that this this young man named Ryan was not only blind, but it turns out he was a genius. And the school was really trying to court him. And and so he had decided he was going to take Ryan and, and give him a personal tour, which he didn't normally do. And bring him to my unit, um, because he thought, for one, my unit happened to be the very closest unit to the academic part of campus. And he said, you know, when we opened the, when we opened the door to your unit, this uh, bunch of ice and snow kind of fell down and, and, uh, and, and you know, landed right in my head. And, um, you know, Ryan's parents, they're a little protective, and they were a little bit concerned that if he came here, something similar might happen to him. And so he said, I think we're, I think we're talking about a suspension here. Some of y'all looking at me like, you've never told me about getting suspended. And so I looked at him, and then he just started laughing. And he said, "Ha, I'm just kidding. Uh, your buddy Mark put me up to this. Try to get you back. <laughs> he said, actually, you were nice to Ryan's family there. You know, anyway, Ryan actually showed up the next year, and he actually moved into my old unit. And uh, so I got a chance to get to know Ryan, and, 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 uh, and it was very interesting learning a little bit about his perspective as a man navigating life blind, and, and so, so he, he had developed some really uh, amazing abilities with, with other senses, like smell, and, and like hearing, right, uh, and even navigation. There's another guy who I'll share with you next week, another fellow, another uh, fellow student named Dennis, who had a seeing eye dog, Ryan didn't. Um, uh, he just used a cane. But Dennis had a dog. And I'll, I'll tell you next week a, a, an amazing story about how he used his infirmity for the glory of God and to make Christ known. And it was pretty amazing, uh, the story of Dennis. But you know, some people who have gone blind later in life are able to retain memories of color and faces and, and sights that they've seen. But, but imagine what it would be like having been born blind and having never known sight. So so you've never seen the ocean. You know, maybe you've you've heard the ocean, maybe you've maybe you've felt the salt spray against your face. Maybe you've been swimming in the ocean, but how can you imagine what it looks like? How could somebody describe to you the, the colors of a of a flower or a sunset if you've never seen a color before? How you might have felt as a young child, the face of your mother, or maybe as a parent, you've, you felt the face of, of a child, but you really don't know what people look like. You don't know what you look like. And you know, the, 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 the beautiful and heartening truth is that the Old Testament says in Psalm 146, 8, that the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. And, and so Jesus tells us later here in, in this very chapter, in chapter 9, that he came to give sight to the blind. And we're going to look at that a little bit more next week. But, but this leads us to our first point this morning, and, and we see in this story that Pastor Joshua just read for us, Jesus's heart for healing. and That's our first point. Jesus's heart for healing. And so verses 1 and 2 really kind of set up the, the scene of this story. Now remember that Jesus has just left the temple complex where he's been in this, 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 this debate with the Jewish leaders in, in John chapter 8, where he had claimed to be the light of the world in, in verse 12 of chapter 8. And he had claimed to be God himself in verse 58 of John chapter 8. Remember Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am the very divine name. He claimed to be his his own, And so this story that we're considering this morning likely happened on a dusty road just outside the temple complex, which would have been a place where beggars would have congregated. And in this, this man's day, uh, sadly, society did not provide a lot for people with disabilities, and so they would be left sitting on a, the side of a dusty road just begging for alms. And, and this is sadly the case in a number of, of countries in the world today where you'll see people blind or lame, just sitting in the dust, hoping for for a handout. And so, in verse 1 and 2, we read, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. It's very likely that Jesus stopped and gave him some attention, or maybe that, that the disciples just pointed him out. And here's what they asked him. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Well, like me, back in college, the disciples' first interaction with this blind guy was not exactly sensitive. Right? They, they asked a theological question, but it was not a compassionate question. It would have been right in front of the man. And, and they wanted to know whose fault, his or his parents, and they they may have been thinking of an Old Testament passage like Exodus 34 7 or Numbers chapter 14 verse 18, which says, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. So the disciples wanted to know why. Why is this man born blind? And you know, the truth is, when we're dealing with uh, cases of suffering and severe illness, we want to know as well, don't we? Well, you know, interestingly enough, in their culture of their day, there's this idea that if, if somebody had a severe illness, like a, like, a, like a blindness or being lame, it was, it was, it was frankly due to uh, their sin or their parents' sin. And so the question was, was really, is it his fault? And you know, you think about that, you think, okay, wait a minute, he was born blind, so are, are you meaning in utero he sinned somehow? I mean, what exactly is in these people's minds here? Um, or his parents? But you know, that was a very common... Uh, way of looking at things, and and, and, in part, it was to get God off the hook for mankind's suffering. The idea was, hey, the primal cause must be themselves or uh, uh, someone in their lineage, a parent or grandparent, right? That is the why, so it's not, we can't blame God for this deformity. But you know, if you think about this, this mindset, this idea also dissuaded compassion for the sufferer. It's, it's like saying, well, they deserve it. And, and you know, folks today have the same mindset sometimes. They'd say, you know, it's just fate or karma. They must have done something here. And what that does is it gets us off the hook for mercy and compassion to those who are suffering. Now, the disciples weren't all wrong. They, they had it right that human suffering is a result of sin. It's, it's easy for us to trace suffering to the sins of mankind when we think about war or corporate greed that might lead to the pollution of a river that leads to cancer and illness in a community or abuse, but even things that are a little harder to ascribe uh, human causation to like, say, natural disasters, right? hurricanes, earthquakes tornadoes. Even natural disasters can be traced back to Adam's sin. So, all suffering does come from sin, but it is not always that of the sufferer. That's important for us to remember, right? All suffering comes from sin, but it is not always the sin of the sufferer. And so, a heart of compassion and mercy is always in order. Jesus made this point in another place. In Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, we read, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What Jesus is saying here is that, listen, you guys are all in the same boat. You are all sinners. So don't think that when one person seems to suffer um, uh, 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 in at in a magnitude greater than the norm or the average that that don't as- assume that, that they are somehow worse than you. This is just a, this, this the suffering in, in one sense points to eternal suffering, the consequences of sin. So repent while there's still time so that you may have freedom, so that you may have eternal healing. Now as we consider Jesus's heart for ministry in his answer to his disciples' question about the reason for this man's blindness, I, I see three important things, okay? And so these are kind of subheadings in our, still within our first point. And the first is the purpose of suffering or purpose for suffering. So let's look at verse 3. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, sometimes God does use suffering in the loving discipline of his children. And, and, and what I want to just point out here is, as a little side note here is, uh, it is true. Sometimes God lovingly uses suffering, uh, and sometimes it is because of our sin. But, you know, if you have confessed all known sin to the Lord, okay, I, I don't think you need to, to uh, go on, a, on an internal witch hunt, Or or sit there and wonder because God makes it clear, I believe, when this is the case, right? I mean, I remember, been married a month, Beth and I get in our first argument, and seconds later, uh, a a piece of plywood falls out of the attic as I'm on a ladder, lands right on top of my my bare foot, and as I was yelping in pain, airborne, falling on my back, I knew right there that was the discipline of the Lord, right? I knew it, I mean, immediately, before I hit the ground, I knew, yep, that's the Lord disciplining me. Uh, I've been selfish, I've been critical. Uh, it was clear, right? So if, if, if you're harboring sin that's unconfessed, uh, don't, you know, don't be a knucklehead, uh, confess it to the Lord, right? The Lord may be using some suffering in your life to get your attention, but he always disciplines his children in love. It's always redemptive in nature. So sometimes God does use suffering in the loving discipline of his children, but Jesus said here in this case, that this man was born blind, not because of sin of his, of his parents or him, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's what Jesus said. Pastor Matt Carter elaborates. He writes, his blindness had a far greater purpose. This man was born blind so Jesus could teach the profound truth of spiritual blindness and reveal himself as the light of the world. This puts a different perspective on the trials that we face. So the the purpose of our hardship may be to demonstrate God's power and His mercy to all who are watching in His future deliverance. So that should motivate us, right? To to continue to pray and to seek Him and to, to watch for His deliverance. For, for future healing. And you know, if you're in Christ, you have a sure promise of future healing when he welcomes you into heaven and gives you your new body, okay? Um, but often the Lord does bring deliverance and healing even in our own lifetime, in our life experience. But my dad taught me to appreciate God as a deliverer. If you ask my dad his the attribute of God that he appreciates the, 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 the greatest, he, he would probably say, he's my deliverer. And, and, and what he means by that is not only Savior, like he delivered us from our sins, but even in our daily lives, uh, God, my dad has really learned to appreciate God's deliverance. My dad's a retired surgeon, and he, he said oftentimes, many times, he got into a jam in the middle of surgery. And he wasn't sure what he was going to do. He couldn't find it, couldn't find the. and, and there wasn't much time. And he, he would just cry out to God for help, and he would actually see God guide his hands and deliver him. And, and I, when, in my own life experience, when I've, when I've stepped out in faith, out of my comfort zone, but in obedience to, to God's command, I, I've seen time and again him deliver me. That deliverance in my life, and that grows my faith, God's deliverance. So we see purpose in hardship here, but also we see here Jesus's urgency in ministry. And so kids, if you're filling out your little forms here, that's your second blank here under point one still. Second, we see Jesus's urgency. And in verse four, he he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. So, night here refers to to Jesus' death, which was imminent and and coming, and the walls were starting to close in around Christ. His his enemies were plotting his death. And of course, Jesus knew this, and his priority was not self-preservation, but ministry to people while there was still time, while he was still in the world. And and notice here the the, the we in verse 4. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. You know, later uh, Jesus told his disciples in John chapter fourteen, twelve, truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Now that that has always just baffled me. How in the world could we do greater works than Jesus? Let me just briefly say, Jesus, I don't believe, is talking about the quality of his works, right? But the quantity, the, the scope. His disciples were to take this gospel and, and even take miraculous healings. They were to take it to the nations and around the world. Jesus' ministry was confined in, within Israel, in, in, in Nazareth, Nazareth, Galilee, some in Samaria in the middle. And, and his disciples were to take it around the known world. And we continue to do so to this day as we spread the gospel to the nations. So we see Jesus' urgency in ministry, that that time should not be wasted. And and, and if he was urgent in his ministry, we should also have an urgency. But third, we see the right ministry focus. Jesus says in verse 5, and this is really the key verse that I've picked out of these seven verses here. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world once again, we, we see this majestic, sweeping statement reminding us of his deity, of his omnipotence, of his, of his omnipresence. Think back of, of Jesus as the Shekinah glory leading his people through the wilderness, right? Jesus himself as, as, as the second person of the Trinity talking to, to Moses and calling him out to, 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 to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Jesus is referring to all of that, but not just past tense, but present and future. Jesus has the power to shine light and to dispel darkness. So this miracle that we're, we're seeing here this morning and thinking about of the healing of this blind man, it's a, it's a beautiful illustration of Jesus's power to heal souls, which which. Um, Pastor, Pastor Bill reminded us two weeks ago is, is a great miracle. In fact, uh, we could argue a greater miracle than actually healing a, a blind man. The fact that God would take a soul, your soul, my soul, and transform us from darkness to light. So as we follow Jesus and as we minister to people's needs, let's make sure that we keep our focus and, and the focus of what we do on Christ. He is the light Of the world. And so if you're in the medical profession, I I think there's a lot of application that you can pull out of this story here. Um, God has uh, and continues to use your hands of healing as an extension of His own. As as you, uh, through your study of His natural revelation of the medical arts, help bring healing about, He's using you, right? But as you do so, let me encourage you, whether you're a nurse or a physician or a physical therapist— let me encourage you to point people to Jesus Christ uh, with all your power. It may be that you only have an opportunity to, to, to pray inside, but there often are more opportunities. Um, use that moment to point people to Jesus. Maybe you're involved in counseling ministry. You know, Jesus' ministry here we see throughout his, his, his experience in, on, on earth in the Gospels was, was to the whole person, right? So maybe you're, you're helping counsel a marriage, a broken marriage, Make sure that you point people to Christ. He's got to stand at the very center. He is their greatest need, a, a saving relationship with God the Father through God the Son's death on the cross. Maybe you're involved in, in a tutoring ministry. The Heights, a wonderful ministry a number of you are involved in. And I, I'm just so proud of you, church. Um, we actually have more men, more young men plugged into this ministry than women. And let me just tell you, that's not the norm okay, for a, a tutoring ministry for kids after school. This is, this is a cool thing. Uh, ladies, uh, we really could use a few more uh, women who know something about math, right, to help teach some of these young ladies. But I, I just want to say that we appreciate the, the, the many of you who come out on Tuesdays and Thursdays with this ministry. But as you're, as you're seeking to help kids, um, uh, learn how to, how, you know, learn the, the basic uh, uh, skills in their schools, and, and even go beyond that and learn basic life skills, be sure that you point them to Jesus. That, that's the greatest need they have, to have a relationship with God through faith in, in Jesus Christ. Well, well, maybe you're involved in disaster response, and, and boy, we're all praying that this hurricane season, uh, nothing hits Florida. Florida's had its fair share of, of, of hits. But what an amazing opportunity we have in people's time of, of great crisis to go out there and show the love of Jesus, right? By cutting trees off their house and, and even muddying out houses that have been flooded. But, but when you go and, and you're involved in this, make sure that you point people to Jesus. Um, I think it's a beautiful thing to pray for them, to, to give them a Bible, to make sure that you take that opportunity in the conversation to point them to the one who can meet their true greatest needs. Well, back in John chapter 8, 12, Jesus had said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so having your spiritual eyes opened, that is everyone's greatest need. And God has called each of us to continue that work. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14 to his disciples, you are the light of the world. And how is that? Well, it's because his light lives inside of us. And we even shine, or you could say reflect that light. We should reflect that light. He said, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus has a heart to heal bodies and souls. So let's consider our second point and, and, and the means That he did it in this case, his hands of healing. That's our second point this morning. Jesus' hands of healing. Verse 6. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. Now this is a very uh, unique way. Jesus chose in this case to heal a man whose eyes had never worked. A very personal Uh, method of healing. And it reminds me of God's work of creation in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. I think there's an intentional picture here. We read in Genesis 2 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. That's the description of God making mankind in his image. Male and female, he created them in his image. Later, we see God taking Adam's rib and fashioning Eve personally. And so we need to remember that this was not a remedial healing in which Jesus reshaped a a cornea, okay? This was a a, a miracle of creation. This man's eyes had never before worked. And so what Jesus is doing here as he creates mud and anoints this man's eyes, okay, He is doing a true miracle through his power as creator God. And of course, Jesus could have just spoken and said, let your eyes see light. And his eyes would have opened right there, right? But Jesus chose to use his his medicine of mud to create this man's eyes the way that they were originally intended to function before the curse of sin, before the fall. Now, I want you to notice and think about Jesus's personal touch here. You know, touch, when it's done appropriately, can really bring comfort to someone's soul. Kids, have you ever been hurt? And you go, what happens? You go crying to your mom, probably, you know. uh, Your dad might be like, you know, toughen up, right? Brush it off. But your mom, what is she going to do? Right? She's going to probably hug you. And and maybe all you need is her just to touch your, your, your leg. And what happens? Somehow it feels better right? Touch really can help with the healing process. Maybe you've been, you've been in, a, in an emergency room or in a hospital room, and a medical personnel has just shown a little compassion, and not only just kind of with their chart kind of told you what they're going to do, but, but just kind of maybe touched your, 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 you know, appropriately, just kind of touch your shoulder a little bit. That can bring comfort um, when it's done appropriately. And so when we pray for somebody who's hurting, and we appropriately put a hand on their shoulder, that can bring comfort. And I believe that's a part of what Jesus was doing here as he anointed this man's totally blind eyes with mud. There was personal touch going on. And you know, that that mud gave weight, the weight of gravity to his face that I think might have even helped motivate him to fulfill Christ's next command. So let's talk about that, the third point, and that is Jesus' habit of healing his habit of healing. We talked about his hands of healing. Let's talk about his habit of healing, or you could say the method or the means of healing. How did Jesus like to go about healing people? Well, he did it in a lot of different ways, but many times as he healed people, we see that he did it in such a way where he expected faith on their part. That was his habit of healing. And this is certainly not the only miracle of healing that Jesus did, where he required his patient to exercise faith, first even. And so he told lepers, right? He told a woman uh, who had, a, had been bleeding all her life. He, he told numerous people at times, go, your faith has healed you. Now, I don't believe he was being literally, being literal there. What I mean by that was it was his power that healed, but he had chosen to use the means of their faith. And you know, I believe it was Indiana Jones uh, in his latest minute, a movie, which was a, a disappointment in my opinion, um, and I'm a fan, okay, um, but he said something along the lines of, and I don't have this written down in my notes, so it might be a little off, but he said, you know, as I've gotten older in life, I've, I've come to understand that it's not really what you believe that matters, but how hard you believe it. And you know what? Indiana Jones was completely wrong. It's the opposite of that. It's not how hard you believe. Jesus talked about a mustard seed of faith, but it's who you believe in. And so Jesus is telling these people, show by your actions that your faith is in me, right? Because he is our healer. But Jesus had a habit here of asking people to believe in him or to show their faith. And so we see that here in this case where Jesus required the exercise of faith from his patient. So in verse 7, he said to the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent." Now archaeologists have two different sites that they've unearthed that there's different arguments that can be made about which one is the legit pool of Siloam. Uh, in Jesus's day. And I can tell you that Bible commentators uh, like to draw all kinds of things out from this. Um, the name, and you know, there's a reference in the Old Testament, or um, even the, the, the means sent, and Jesus is the sent one. But what I want you to think about here is that uh, it, it's simply location, right? Both of these places that archaeologists have pointed to as being the likely places of the Pool of Siloam were nowhere close to where Jesus was as he was leaving the temple complex, having this conversation with this man, okay? They were on the other side of the city, and so they required what we'll call a distance of faith. And that would be an uncomfortable and awkward journey for a blind man who had mud on his eyes, okay? I mean, uh, imagine being blind. You've got certain habits. You've got certain um, patterns by which you live your life, and you know how many steps. You know exactly where, and now you've got to go find this place that you may have never been to, on the other side of the city, right? That is not an easy, convenient thing to go do. And so we can see from this that faith matters. In fact, you could call this a faith healing. Maybe I woke a couple of you up just now. A faith healing, and I'll call it that, a faith healing, okay? So, so Jesus healed this man through Jesus's power, not this man's power to, to you know, really believe, He healed the man through his power, but he used this man's act of faith as his method to bring about that healing. And and why does Jesus do this? Well, it's because he understands what really matters for eternity. What really matters for this man wasn't that he could see in this life, but that he could see God and worship him for eternity. And that's all about faith. And we're gonna see in the next chapter how Jesus seeks him out to save his soul. And to open the eyes of his heart to behold his glory. We're going to see that next week. Well, some have said this. Faith healing is not believing that God can heal you. It's believing that God will heal you. Have You ever heard that before? Right? Faith healing is, is not believing that God can do it, but that he will do it. And so it's up to you to believe that God really will do it if it's going to happen. So it's on you. Now, let me, let me just say this can be cruel. Um, but let's consider the idea for a moment here. The presupposition to what I just said is that God always wants to heal everyone from every sickness in this life. So what's keeping him from it is our lack of faith. Well, first of all, if this was true, we wouldn't get to die and go to heaven, right? So there's a problem, Uh, with with that, just there. But more importantly, what does the Bible have to say about this idea that God always stands ready and is always actually wanting to heal every single individual from every single malady? And what's keeping it from happening is our lack of faith every time, right? Um, Well, first of all, I got to ask the question, are we remaking Jesus? Are we trying to remake God into the image that we want him to be? Or are we bowing our knee before Him as He has revealed Himself in the Bible. Now, we do see in the Bible many examples of Jesus showing His desire to heal. And and in this great ministry that He had of, of healing so many who were sick and blind and even raising some dead people back to life, we see pictures of spiritual realities that God is still doing throughout the world today. So, Jesus did on many occasions desire to heal. And you know what? He still heals today. And I, I believe we should pray in faith for healing today. But you know, there are some examples in the Bible that show us it is not always God's will to deliver us from suffering along our desired schedule. I'll give you the prime example would be the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 26 Verse 39, we read about Jesus in Gethsemane. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus' deepest desire, even though he did not want to go to the cross, his deepest desire was to fulfill his mission, to please his Father and to rescue us. But it was certainly not God's will to deliver Jesus from suffering in that moment. Now later, he exalted him, right? He's the name above every name, that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord, right? But here's another example in the Bible of, a, of someone who wasn't the Son of God, um, Paul, who wrote about in 1 Corinthians 12, a thorn in his flesh. All right? Now, there's plenty of speculation about what exactly was that. I think it was a physical malady that plagued him. Dr. Luke accompanied him on many of his journeys, okay? Um, But here's what Paul has to say about that. In verse 7, he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me—and this is the next slide— to keep me from becoming conceited. 3 times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And so, you know, when 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 Paul talks about um, praying three times. I'm, I'm going to guess that this was probably um, hyperbole for you know three thousand times. Okay, uh, three three often means a great number uh, in 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 the, in, the, in, the, in kind of Bible times and Bible culture here, and, and so Paul wanted this thorn removed, but he understood that actually even though it was a messenger of Satan himself, something that was hurting, okay, and making life miserable and more difficult. God was using it so that Paul would stay reliant. And so God had a deeper purpose, and and Paul submitted to that. So I believe that that we should indeed pray with hope and and optimism even for healing. But, But the greatest act of faith may be to persevere in prayer, not just for healing, but for His glory in your life through the suffering And to say to him, even if if your answer, God, is not now, you are still worthy. I will trust you and I will still worship you with my life. Let's look at the result here, the second part of verse 7. So he went and washed and came back seeing. I really appreciated Kent Hughes' painting the picture of this last sentence. Here's what he wrote. I-, I wonder how he felt. A bit foolish? Probably. Even though he was blind, he must have had some idea that he was creating a scene as he made his way to Salome with his eyes covered in mud. But I also think that his heart began to pound with a swelling possibility that he might receive his sight. What if this really works? Then incredibly, as he washed in Salome, light poured into his being. He could see, perhaps the first thing he saw was own reflection. Then water, sky, trees, faces. Well, this miracle that Jesus did in this man's life points to the miracle of granting spiritual sight to the lost. From from darkness to the dawn of spiritual light, which happens in our lives at that moment of first faith. Former depraved slave trader John Newton reflected on this light in his song Amazing Grace. He writes Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed? Well, let's let's land the plane, and I'll make it. I'll make it brief. Here's here's what I hope you'll remember when you think about this passage, and it's this: we, you and me, were the blind man sitting by the road. That's us, okay? Lost in in darkness. One one pastor said that the blind man, quote, serves as an illustration of fallen mankind. We are spiritually blind and cannot see the beauty of God. So the question is, which blind man are you? Are you the the blind man who's just sitting by that road, right, in the dust, in the dirt? And, and, And what would have happened if that blind man, after Jesus had had this interaction with him, and had, had anointed his eyes with the mud and, and told him to go wash in this pool. What, what, if, what if he just sat there and he, and he said, I'm good. Uh, what's the big deal? I've been doing this all my life. I'm fine. And he just kept shaking that alms plate. Or what if he said to the beggar sitting next to him, Can you believe that crazy guy wanted me to walk across town to bathe in a pool? I'm blind for crying out loud. Is that you? Or are, you, are you the blind man who sees now? And, and, and is, is boldly sharing with others who might not even like it, and we're going to see that next week. They might not even like it, but sharing what God has done in his life. Which blind man are you? Let's pray. We thank you, oh God, that you are the God who heals. Thank you for many times, maybe that we've recognized or that we haven't, that you have physically healed us. Lord, I thank you for every every time you heal us from an infirmity. um, We do give you praise. We thank you that you are still in the healing business. Lord, we we thank you even much more and and far greater for the spiritual healing. Lord, I thank you for opening so many of our eyes to see our depravity, to to see our, our need of you, and then to see you even if it's still through a glass darkly, we thank you that through faith, through the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can sense you and we can, we can see your grace and your beauty in our life. Lord, we look forward to the day that, that we don't walk by faith. Lord, we look forward to the day that we see you clearly. And Lord, I pray that until that day we would continue in faith. And Lord, I pray for the soul in this room who right now is still blind. Lord, I pray that today would be the day that you would anoint their eyes with mud and that they would respond in faith, and that they would believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and rose from the dead. Give them sight, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.